I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the The Flight Flight Safety Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GO team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, my friend, we are finally together after a year to tape a show, an episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It is amazing that I had to come all the way to Boston so that we could actually do a show together. And in fact, I brought a friend of ours, Jason LeCastics, with us. So we made it a party so we could record this episode. So great to see you. I know that we've had dinner together the last couple of nights, and it's awesome that we are finally back together recording Flight Safety Detectives. So, hello, John. Hello, and I am glad that that we're back together. It's been a year, as you said, and it's just uh, we're starting to get back to normal with all this nonsense with the, the virus and the rest of it. I know I've been shot up. You've gotten your shot. Yep. So, hopefully, in by the... Memorial Day, this country will be back to somewhat back to normal and people will be flying again and the airlines can start to get stable. And, and of course, the downside is a lot of our people that, are, that haven't been flying for the last year are going to be flying. And that's if they're not smart and don't do good pre-flights and don't fly with somebody to help them make sure that their skills are where they left off, we might see a little spike in the accident rate as well. Well, I had to bring Jason with me because uh, somebody needed a chaperone for you and I when we got together. So uh, Jason definitely volunteered to do that. And of course, he and I had to actually do some work for a living while we were here. But it's great that the three of us are together. It was uh, basically a busy month this past March for not only fatal accidents, but serious injury accidents as well. That included a seven fatal Cessna 401 that was coming out of Mexico heading for Tucson and unfortunately had some sort of presumed engine problem, possibly even an overweight situation. But the airplane crashed right after takeoff down in Mexico. So that, of course, is going to uh, to draw a lot of scrutiny. And then there was a uh, Super Cub accident up in Alaska, which kind of drew some, at least some chuckles out of all of us. Because the Anchorage Daily News, as they always do, they cover these accidents. They ended up writing an article, but then making a statement at the very end of the article. And Jason, I'm going to let you tell me what that statement was. <laughs> I have to get the clip out and take it see where it was at. So at the end of, at the end of the clip, which was on momentarily and has been revised. It said, I'm not sure, but it appears that the NTSB Regional Chief Clint Johnson can be seen in the second photo. What a rare sight. 
You know, <laughs> that, that, that's really a sorry testimonial that uh, we've gotten to the point now that even the reporters from faraway newspapers have identified the fact that the NTSB just hasn't been out there doing the on-scene investigations like their mandate says they should. They delegated to the FAA for the last year. So I guess we NTSB doesn't care that the FAA personnel are exposed to the virus as long as they protect their own investigators. Well, so. you know, we've, over the past year, we have really hit the safety board hard for not going out and doing their job, and that is doing the most important part of the investigation, and that is the on-site inspection of the wreckage, because that is where the majority of the evidence is in all of these accidents, even if it's a simple accident. And the fact that they haven't been showing up, they've been having the wreckage removed, stored, and when they finally get around to it in the queue, which could be a year or two from now, that valuable evidence is all but gone. So it is obvious with the number of accidents that do occur up in Alaska that the Anchorage Daily News picked up on the fact that the NTSB, quote, finally has gone out on an accident. And, and I know that, Jason, you were talking about the fact that they revised the story and they took a quote from Clint Johnson talking about the fact that he did show up and he was on scene and provided some basic information. But it is apparent that uh, the news media does notice things like this. John and I have talked about it on various shows. And in fact, even other podcasters who are talking about aircraft accidents have made similar comments about the fact that the safety board has not showed up on accidents. So it is one of those things that, again, accident investigation has multiple aspects. And one of the most important aspects of any accident investigation is the on-scene. And nobody knows that better than an insurance company. And our sponsor, Avemco Insurance, is one of those groups that, again, they're trying to promote safety, but they use data to do that. They try to understand what's going on in the industry and a lot of the information that they use for some of the discounts where you can go online and take these courses are safety-related courses. The data that the industry depends on, a lot of it comes from the NTSB. But if the data is critically wrong because they haven't done a th thorough and methodical investigation, then the, the data doesn't really support where we need to be looking with safety issues, not only in general aviation, but in aviation as a whole. And I know, John, that we always talk about this. And now with what's going on in the industry and Jason and I are working on a couple of projects where the insurance companies have now jumped in with a firm hand and are basically threatening to fail to underwrite pilots who own certain types of aircraft. Yeah, it's, I tell you what, given the number of accidents that we've seen here just recently, it's not a good time to be an insurance company. But, you know, Avemco is our sponsor, and I'd like to remind everybody that if you're in the market for insurance, whether it's new or you're going to have time to renew, or if you need renter's insurance or CFI insurance, give Avemco a call, and then 888-241-7891 is their toll-free number. If you mention the show, you get a 5% discount. So please give them a call if you need insurance. Yeah. And like I said, Jason and I are working on a project right now 
There's an insurance company that uh, because of some of the issues that uh, are occurring with a particular model aircraft, and we've talked about it briefly on other shows, and that is the PA-46, the M500 and M600 models. There's some scrutiny going on in the aviation industry. And like we talked about on previous shows, Jason and I and John will be talking about some of these issues later on in the near future as soon as we get a little more data. Talking about, of course, fatal accidents, there was another serious fatal accident in Alaska with a helicopter involving a number of heliskiers. Eventually, unfortunately, killed five people, including one, possibly two, of the richest people in the Czech Republic who were out on vacation, on holiday, and were involved with this helicopter that crashed. And again, there was a, a lot of misinformation or mischaracterization of information early on. And of course, the NTSB is still in, in investigation mode. But Jason, you, you happen to live not too far from this particular accident site. And the weather right now up there in Alaska, it hasn't really you know, gone steady state. It's constantly changing. And from the early information, they were able to get up and uh, at least the military was able to get up and, and recover the victims. But shortly thereafter, you know, you get a snowstorm and all of a sudden you obliterate the wreckage with snow. So now investigators can't really get up and, and do their job. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, so nautically over the mountain range. I'm technically three mountain ranges from where it actually happened. So not very far away, you know, less than 20 miles or so. But the weather's been on and off. The weather's been really bad. Temperature's up, down. We've had a lot of snow, a lot of snow coming down, you know, low-lying clouds and things like that. And that particular time on that evening, again, in the valley that I was in, three valleys over, we had cloud cover and everything. And it just was, uh, you know, was just kind of the, the weather just hasn't really changed and gotten better yet. So. And I know that the accidents that I've ever worked with overcast conditions, windy conditions, and of course snow, it's kind of like uh, flying out over the ocean with a little bit of fog where you don't really have a very discerning visible horizon. You got a relatively new pilot to this organization. He'd only been with the company a couple of years. And so I think that a number of aspects that the NTSB and the FAA will be looking at will include, one, his experience and what kind of experience this particular pilot had with the type of operation that was was going on, which was to retrieve or at least drop heliskiers. And so that has to be ferreted out. But then, of course, the uh, the board's going to be scrutinizing the operator because they, they are not accident-free. They've been around a long time. They do have a good track record, but uh, they are not accident-free. So they're going to be looking at policies, procedures that they have in place for this particular event. But like you said, I think that uh, the environmental conditions, which would include particular weather conditions, blowing snow or snowstorm, or whatever, but you also have to worry about visual acuity because uh, you don't have a discernible horizon. And some of the early information that's come out has suggested that the aircraft wasn't in a hover like to drop skiers, but in fact was moving horizontally, probably at a pretty good clip, and, and hit the top of, of a ridgeline, a snow-covered ridgeline. 
Yeah, the new statement says it was between 10 or 15 feet below the top of the ridgeline. The helicopter impacted and then, you know, you could take a, they've only really posted one photo for everybody to look at. So there's a couple of photos of the area. One of the, uh, there's a Black Hawk in the photo down the hill, but, you know, there's one picture kind of looking up the mountain there, you know, and when you, when you zoom it in and you blow it up really big, you can see one of the skid baskets stuck in the snow. You can, looks like you see one of the rotor blades stuck in. So, you know, it appears that the helicopter, you know, at some point up there made contact with the top of the ridge and then rolled, rolled down the, on the back side of it and tore itself apart as it was coming down. And of course, we've all investigated accidents where with a rolling aircraft, whether it's a, a fixed wing aircraft that has shed wings and it's just the fuselage rolling down the hill, or in this case, a helicopter, people getting thrown around, it's going to inflict serious, if not fatal injuries. And unfortunately, in this case, it was five fatal injuries in this particular accident. One of the things that, of course, being up in Alaska, and you've worked up there for a long time, Jace, is what kind of scrutiny? Because you do have these heliski operations. I mean, aviation is a way of life in, in Alaska. How much scrutiny, how much oversight, at least under the current conditions, can the FAA give up there or have with all the operators? that are running these types of operations. Well, it's the, it's the same kind of thing. You know, the yearly work program comes out and, the, you know, the FAA has oversight. And so the FAA has, a, you know, a team. They've got teams. They have a special helicopter unit. And that particular helicopter unit has a wide variety of the helicopter operators. And then they all go through the yearly inspection programs and, you know, the current updates. And I haven't uh, had any discussions with any of them lately about you know, going out. But I do know that the heliski operations now, because of Canada being shut down with COVID, it and everything, a lot of people came to heli-ski to Alaska. So heli-skiing's been up there. So uh, there has been oversight and, and teams of FAA inspectors have been out and, and looked at different operators and discussed with them just because the operations have been up. But uh, I haven't heard that there's been anything abnormal or any sort of abnormal safety findings as part of the operations. But heli-skiing this year has, has been on the uptick because other places haven't been able to do it. The Medallion Foundation used to do a lot of work in the safety area for the FAA. But did I not read that they, they're no longer in existence? That's correct. The Medallion Foundation, as I know it, is, is in its original form, is no longer in existence. It's been a couple of years since they've they kind of That's shut everything thought. down. I thought it was 19 that they shut down. So that left the void, although some people say that they weren't doing a very good job. But nonetheless, it left the void in the safety window, if you will in that area. I mean, I know that uh, Chairman Sumwald has spent a, a number of visits to going to uh, speak at Medallion Foundation events in Alaska, spreading the word for safety. It's a challenging place to fly Alaska. You know, the times I've been up there, I've looked at it and was glad I wasn't flying. Yeah. Good morning, you're on the ground, Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. Hey, 920, runway 248, taxi. John brings this up because, uh, like he said, Chairman Sumwalt from the NTSB has been up to Alaska. And in fact, they, uh, they had a, um, a large public forum about a year and a half ago up there 
where they invited all the 135 or a good majority of the 135 operators from the Alaska area to come together and talk about issues of safety involving these types of operations. And it went on for a whole day. They aired some issues and that kind of stuff. Whatever came of that? Whatever came, I still have not seen a report from the NTSB. I haven't seen any recommendations that ever came out of it. Has anything really changed after that forum that you're aware of, at least through the FAA or the industry? Not that I'm aware of through the industry. I'm kind of waiting on on, a, on an end report with a bunch of recommendations to come out. There was a lot of people there. I actually went to the event for that day, and there was a lot of people there with a lot of questions. And there was a lot of issues discussed, a lot of operational issues discussed. But uh, as I'm not sure that anything final, some sort of final report recommendation paper has actually come out to address all of those things. And in the meantime, since that forum, we've had a number of fatal accidents involving either mid-air collisions or or, of course, a CFIT, like this particular accident we're talking about, as well as others. And the question is, how much longer are we going to have to wait to promote safety? It's one thing to have a forum, but you can't sit on the information if you are going to come up with safety recommendations to enhance operations up there and mitigate or eliminate issues or hazards that cause incidents and accidents. How much longer can we wait? Because it's apparent that we're still having a lot of accidents up there. You know what? How much longer are we going to wait for good information? If they're not going out, they're not gathering all the facts at the crash site and documenting them in a meaningful way, then we're not going to have a good report. So we're going to have about a year of accidents that the data is going to be essentially unreliable because it hasn't had a, a real thorough vetting in the very beginning. So now we're going to have a lot of assumptions plugged in, and who knows where that's going to lead. And in this case, like you were talking about, Jace, they were able to recover the victims. And then before you came down here, I mean, it was snowing up there. So now they're limited by the fact that they can't get back up to the accident site, they being the NTSB and the FAA investigative team, to do their job on scene, if in fact they were going to do their job on scene. From the article, from the statement that was made, a, an investigator, they didn't say which organization, they said an investigator was there and they were able to take photographs and did some initial work and everything, just trying to set up because they knew the weather was going to get bad and the snow is going to come in. So you're going to have to wait for it to warm up for the snow to melt and then get back if they weren't able to recover it. Nobody said anything yet and there hasn't been any plans uh, that have been put out in writing or any forums that it, you know, that's that's planned to get picked up soon. Could so, be July by the time they go, <laughs> go back up there. If it, if it keeps snowing and it keeps snowing and it keeps snowing, we've had so much snow this year, even though, you know, they say the quantity of snow uh, hasn't really changed. Um, it's been a lot colder this year. So the snow just keeps stacking up and stacking up and hasn't melted away. We're going to have to wait, you know, another month or two, another six weeks before it warms up enough for sort of to all melt away. So you get to get back in there and have a look if, if that's what actually happened, if they got a couple feet. Yeah. And how much will it move? You know, as snow melts on these steep slopes, it carries everything with them down the slope. That's right. So now you're going to have to expand the search area if you're looking for something and you have to know what you're looking for to go looking for it. So it gets to be a, a chasing your tail situation.
one of the things, John, and again, we, we talk about these kinds of things on, on the show all the time, and there is definitely a, a difference between situational awareness, spatial disorientation, with visual illusions. And, and I think those of uh, you that are listeners out there that don't fly may not be very conversant in the fact that as pilots, we do experience visual illusions, whether it's flying at night and looking at a long runway or a short runway. They take on different appearances. When we are operating in snow, like this helicopter may have been operating in either snow that was falling or blowing snow caused by the rotor system. If they don't have a very discernible visual horizon and they are flying by visual references to the ground, it may be that the pilot misjudged his altitude, thought a white snowbank up front was uh, was just the horizon and ended up striking the top of the mountain. So the investigators are going to have to really make a concentrated effort in trying to determine whether or not that was a cause or contributing factor in this accident. And while, yes, we probably won't see the NTSB on scene of this particular accident for a while because of the snow and possibly other limitations, there's still a lot of investigative work that needs to be done. What would the FAA and the NTSB do when they go visit the operator? In this case, it was Soloy was the operator up there. So what would they be doing when they walk in the front door as part of this investigation, Jason? Well, with a, with a standard FAA assisting with the NTSB in this particular deal, they'll go to the operator and they're going to want to try to get any sort of records that they can get for the helicopter. They're looking for the maintenance logs. What sort of maintenance program is it on? What's the most recent inspection that was done? When's the most recent? Each helicopter has a different type of maintenance program. Which program was it? What is it on? Where was it current? What's been done to it? Then they're going to look at all, you know, any additional STCs that have been added to it, any sort of engine enhancements. They're going to be looking at all kinds of things, collecting all the data they can from the operator, and then taking it back to, to pour over it to have a look to see if there was anything in there that could be of use. Because, uh, again, while it looks possibly obvious when you look at the circumstances that, yes, this could be just an inadvertent uh, collision, uh, in-flight collision with terrain. As an investigator, we know that we have to go out and ensure that there was nothing that was mechanically wrong with that aircraft that either was causal or contributing to the accident. We have no idea why that pilot was flying that close to the terrain at the time. It's obvious. Now, was it he was always at that altitude and he just inadvertently hit this hill. Did he descend into that hill? Was he out trying to outclimb the terrain because he got himself into a position? Was there a mechanical problem? So there's a lot of aspects to this investigation other than the guy just flew into the side of the mountain and killed five people. You know, didn't I read that they have uh, this particular helicopter had a video recorder on it? Yes, and the uh, so the, the Airbus and and I believe this one has and some different people have, have posted in the forum. So in the years, so the A three fifty B three does have a, a a cockpit video recording system above the shoulder. If it's a if it's a really older one, maybe not, but this one does. And then it should also, I believe, it has an engine FADEC unit as well that's going to record engine parameters as well. So there should be a potential for for capturing uh, being able to get onboard data from the unit. And that's that's going to be critical for investigators because that'll help reconstruct the the flight path and the performance of the aircraft. 
You know, one of the things that, as, as you two guys were talking, I was thinking, I've listened to a couple of different podcasts or, or YouTube videos today that touched on this accident. And one of the things that we do different than the others do is we don't speculate and we don't jump to conclusions. We raise all the possibilities, and you guys both just did that extensively with like probably 15 different possibilities that could be part of this event, but we don't jump to those conclusions. But there was one that I listened to just before we started this podcast, and it, I mean, they have it already solved. There's already several things wrong with what he was saying. Sometime today he recorded that, and by tonight a little more facts are out, and he's already wrong. So to our listeners, you understand that uh, we don't jump to conclusions unless we tell you we're jumping to conclusions. Yeah, you know, and, if, and a lot of the time that we jump to conclusions, it's based on fact. We, we, just complete, <laughs> we just complete the thought with those facts because the board hasn't come out with an official cause or some other investigative authority, but it is based on fact. And I think that the three of us were fortunate because uh, in our own particular circles, we still have good relationships and we do get information, some of which we can't share, but at least it gives us a basis of understanding to at least enlighten you, the listener, to where the investigation's going, where we think the investigation should be going, and how the investigators should get there. Because again, nobody's perfect, including us, even though I hate to say that. I got John here, and he's always perfect with, with his investigative work. <laughs> right. So, I, I, I mean, we have to keep up with that. But other than that, you know, it is, it is very important that you do a thorough and methodical investigation. But, yes, 48 hours after an accident, you don't have it solved because there are always facts that are going to be developed that are going to change your storyline minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day, week to week. Yeah, it gets back to my favorite subject, too. If they don't do a good investigation on scene, the outcome is not what it could or should be. And it's really a tragedy for the aviation community that the NTSB has, has just doesn't get it. And, you know, the other piece that I keep raising it is why does after an accident and the NTSB comes out with with their probable cause when there happens to be enough money on the table involved in the players the attorneys will do a separate investigation and oftentimes it'll uncover a number of different things that the NTSB simply missed and I used to take a very dim view of that while I was at the board very dim view of that. I figured it was just posturing to, for court appearances. But I have since changed my mind on that. The difference really is a good investigation compared to an almost good investigation. Well, I mean, Jason and I, and you, have, when we left our respective agencies, we do expert witness work. And we do work for a variety of clients. And we have uncovered stuff that we believe, at least Jason and I for sure, and, and you and I have worked some maintenance accidents, John, that we all believe. It's like, why didn't the NTSB get this? If we can get this a year or two after the accident, why in the hell didn't the NTSB or the FAA get it with the most pristine opportunity, and that is right after the event? 
And a lot of it comes down to not understanding the process, not asking the right questions, not following up, and not being curious to dig all the way through the obvious. Well, in fairness to, to many of the investigators, you know, we send one person out. And I can remember doing going to the accident scene only because I was in the area in California, and that investigator had 22 open cases at that moment in time. I mean, we had a lot of people in Washington. For the last couple of years, for the last 10 years, we haven't had a major accident. What are we doing with all that talent? We could have put that talent out on some GA accidents and done a, a real thorough one like they did on Kobe Bryant because yeah, it was somebody famous. Exactly. And maybe they would have realized that some of what we're doing needs to be tweaked, needs to be changed, or needs to be beefed up instead of just keep going with one investigator going out and he has it all. And, uh, you know, here in the Northeast is a good example. Most of the flying for the GA people, it's on the weekends. Yes. So what happens? You have two or three accidents on the weekend. You have one guy bouncing around between two or three accidents. They need to rethink what the, how they handle the GA accidents. The GA accident community is coming out and shot into that stick. And I know, Jace, because uh, I've got friends in the FAA. You work there. You still have a lot of friends in the FAA. Do they really like going out and doing accident investigation because the board has delegated it to them? Well, Given the fact that they have all <laughs> these other things that they're responsible for, like enforcement and oversight? Yeah, that's kind of a loaded question. So, you know, there is there is definitively a segment of the of the workforce that love to do accident investigation, that love to get to the core, do the research, get into it. And then there's there's another series of inspectors that you know, they have a lot of operators. They have a significant workload already that they're doing. And so accident investigation normally falls into other duties as assigned. So it's a rotation through the office and they rotate this person one week, next week, next week. So you're on call. So you may, depending on the size of the office, you may do it. You may be on call for one week for a whole year. So you may only do one a year. And then some people are so busy with workload and everything. And they, they just really, that's not really what they joined the agency. They didn't join the agency to go out and do that. So there is a, a portion of the the inspectors that just love it and they and they don't do it all the time. And there's another part of the uh, of the group that it's not really their cup of tea, and it's just another duty that they have to do. And they go out and do it because they have to, and they check the boxes and and go through the process and they get the job done. They're all trained accordingly. Everyone is trained the same. Everybody uses the same forms. They use the same manuals. They you know attempt to do the same process. And when they have questions, they call other people that that do know they call those people when they get stuck but for the most part you know the fa is there to determine their nine areas of responsibility and they, they work through the process and then they hand the information over and and tsb carries forward with it so investigator faa asi is here it is friday night a weekend and we have an airplane crash he's already put a weekend he's got some homework as usual because he's got his carriers that he's got to oversee and now he's get the he gets to go out for a day, day and a half to take a look at a GA airplane accident. And now he's just, he's just screwed up his week the following week because he's got to complete the paperwork, but he still have his, has its normal assignment to complete. So they don't cut them very much slack, especially in these areas that are un, staffing is down. If you have a crash right here in, in the eastern region in Boston area, 
they don't have enough inspectors to do the workload because they've had people transfer out. So all those inspectors have picked up the workload from the people that have transferred out. Now throw an accident in on top of that. Uh, you think you're going to get their full and undivided attention? I don't think so. I and don't of think course, so. financial resources as well has always inhibited that. There's a lot of times where the FAA says we can't travel because we don't have a budget. We hear that quite a bit. I mean, it's one thing that the board, you know, may try to use that as an excuse. They got a pretty hefty budget. They they have money to travel. The FAA, on the other hand, doesn't have, you know, that kind of unlimited resource. And the resources that are being expended are for doing their primary jobs, which is oversight and enforcement. It is not acts investigation. Difficult situation. Yeah. Well, I would just hope that the NTSB would take this accident, this latest accident in, in Alaska, where unfortunately five people lost their life, and they dust off whatever it was that they were able to develop out of this uh, 135 conference from a year and a half plus ago, and really accelerate this, because they cannot afford to wait and neither can the industry. If they're going to put out something as far as recommendations to enhance safety, why sit on it? You got nothing going on. You got no investigators traveling. You got a lot of people sitting around. That's a lot of brain power that can actually be working on these issues right now to write not only this accident report, but get this you know safety enhancement report out. If, in fact, they are going to make recommendations, that's going to enhance the safety, not only in Alaska, but could benefit operators, you know, in the lower 48 as well. Really benefit, not just rubber stamp the, the previous recommendations, which in the near term, recent near term, I see a lot of that. They're just restating the old, rehashing the old recommendations. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult job at times being investigated for the NTSB and trying to come up with solutions to problems takes a lot of brain power and, and they've got to do it. It's their job. If you're not up to it, then, you know, the federal government has a process where you can transfer out to other agencies yeah. where life may be easier. And, and John, you bring up a point, and that is I never looked, when I was uh, an investigator with the board and even in my afterlife, I am never really sitting down to go, okay, Greg, you got to come up with the solution to fix this problem. I'm looking for at least either a group think tank to come up with workable solutions or at least postulate ideas that are reasonable, practical, and prudent that can be implemented as either a total solution or incorporated into another solution. But those investigators aren't tasked with sitting down and having to come up with the fix. They'll never do that. They don't have the talent to do it in a lot of those areas. We've seen that in the recent past. The board's been under fire for some of the recommendations that they've made because they're not workable. They're not practical. They sound good. They feel good. They look good on paper. But you can't really employ those, those quote, recommendations that are, are presented as a possible solution. What they need to do is work more with the industry. And I remember when, when we were there, when I was there, I used to pick up the phone and, and call the FAA and go, hey, look, we're thinking about writing a recommendation, and this is the recommendation. Is this possible? And they go, based on the way you're telling me or the way you wrote it, no. But if you break it up, make it phases, or, or do it piecemeal, we can make that work. 
you have to have a give and take. You cannot just put something out and expect the industry to embrace it and then try to employ it. It's not going to happen. I can't tell you how many vigorous discussions that I had with the heads of uh, aviation safety over recommendations that they wanted to put out that were vague and pie in the sky. And I would push them to be more focused, be more focused, be more focused. I won some of those arguments, but I think I lost more than I won. It's sometimes very hard for the, the board members, if they have a desire to push on those recommendations, sometimes it can be very hard to get the changes. In fact, just a few board meetings ago, we wasted an hour and a half over a couple of words in the report. Yep. It was actually like painful to watch. Well, I, I just hope that this is a call to action, that they really do something with all the uh, the money they spent taking a gaggle of people up there a year and a half ago to, to gather information from a variety of panelists that were talking about a variety of things, including safety management systems and processes and all sorts of stuff. So, love to see that. And while we got you here, Jason, it happens to be that we've had some great feedback from our listeners about the wing spar issue on Piper Aircraft. And it just so happens that one of the podcasts, the most recent podcast, where we were talking about the inspection and the bolts and the washers that were being used and the fact that these washers then were identified as being incorrect. Piper had sent out 5,000 washers. What just happened in the recent past to really solidify that point? So the FAA now has come out with a special airworthiness information bulletin, and it's going to be the subject is wing spar, verification of correct washers used with wing spar attached bolts, specifically about this issue. And what does all that mean in that SAIB? And so kind of what we were doing is we've kind of been monitoring the forums like we've, we've told the listeners before. And, you know, you and I started talking a couple of weeks ago where, you know, people were putting on the, the accidentally, do I have the right washer? Do I not have the right washer? And one particular gentleman several weeks ago wrote on the forum, he's like, hey, I, I ordered this part washer. I went to the parts catalog, I ordered the washer, but it, it doesn't appear to look like the same washer. He kind of started the whole snowball of everybody like, well, I ordered it, but I'm not sure if mine's right. So now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands of inspections have occurred in wings. And it appears that for a block time, the supplier that supplied the washers to Piper didn't machine the washer correctly by putting a beveled edge on one side. So they supplied them with a washer that had the right part number but wasn't manufactured correctly. And subsequently, Piper sent those out. So those have more than likely been used in the, after the inspections. You know, people buy new bolts, they buy new washers, they buy new nuts, they bought them as a package, and some outfits actually offered it as a kit. So they went ahead and opened them up and put kits, and owners bought the kits, and they've installed them now. But the problem with that is, and now that comes down, now there's going to have to be another inspection of the bolts that you just installed. Unbelievable. And the fact that this beveled edge is very critical with these washers for the very reason that while it, again, it doesn't seem likely or hard to believe, you start to wrench down that bolt 
And of course, that washer starts to cut into the material and through operational use, it's like a knife, is it not, Jason? And, and what are you looking for? What are these guys? I know that they haven't been probably installed on the airplane long enough, but if they're on the airplane for at least any amount of time, they will probably present some level of scarring right now, will they not? Absolutely. So on the inside radius where the where the washer, so below the head of the bolt in the radius as you go inboard towards the eye beam of the spar, what happens is the squared off washers actually cut down into the material and it creates a, a little ridge, a riser, a stress riser, a place for a crack to, to originate. And so what I'm going to do is for you guys, for the listeners out there, um, I have photos. I've actually got really good photos. I, you know, you know, I'm a spar collector. Yeah. I have, I have <laughs> yes, tons of spars. I have tons of spars in the office. So um, uh, we'll, uh, I've taken some great photos of this already just on a completely side issue that we talked about a month ago. I took a bunch of pictures of this exact thing. And uh, so what I'll do is I'll make them available to you guys. I'll forward them over so you can put them on the, the site for everybody. They could see exactly what they're looking for. Now, what the solution is about how to fix it when you find it. That's the next part that we're going to have to get into. And I'll tell you, it's going to be real interesting because with this SAIB out and they have to re-inspect their already inspected wings bar and the bolts and the washers, if that happened to me, I'd have it done and that bill would be going right to Piper. What? And what about it, those that, that have had the material displaced? That could be a spot cap replacement. This is a whole another extremely large subject that's going to open up as people start to pull the bolts back out. Like I was telling Greg, I haven't done, I was going to try to get in, I have a really high definition bore scope. I was going to try to get in to see if I could bore scope, to get in really close, to see if I could actually do just a visual inspection on the lower part of the wash. I'm not sure I can do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it here in the next week or two. So I'm going to try to actually do that, see if we could do it visually. If not, you're going to have to go through the process of, again, don't hammer the bolts out. You're going to have to take the nuts out. We're going to have to take the bolts back out. You're going to have to inspect the washers. I mean, you're going to have to go through the process, and then there's going to be have an added step. Now, the instructions in the SAB don't show – they didn't supply any pictures with telling you if you have the squared off washer and it has caused the damage, what it looks like and what you're supposed to do about it yet. They, nobody, We haven't addressed that yet. So that's the next cycle of this that's going to be addressed. So I'll put out some, uh, I've got some great photos for you guys. I'll, uh, we'll make them available. And so everybody can just, they'll know right off the bat what they're, they'll see them and they'll be able to, they're really high quality pictures. They can zoom in and yeah. they'll be able to see exactly what we're talking about. My big concern now, Jace, is the fact that these people, one, started flocking to get the, uh, the spars NDT'd inspected. It's a costly inspection. It takes the airplane out of service for some period of time. We watched the, the forums and that kind of stuff, and there were people that were, I mean, just crying and complaining about having to do it. Fortunately, some of them came back and said, hey, you know, they were celebrating because their, their wing didn't have any cracks. And then there's others that go, damn, I found cracks in both wings. That's a, a, an expensive fix. What I'm concerned about now with these washers is how many pilots, owners of these aircraft are going to say, you know what, to hell with it. I am not going to spend another five, six, seven hundred bucks to have these, these washers inspected or changed out. I'll just fly with it, you know. Eh, you know, what's it going to do? It, I mean, it'll take three, four, five thousand hours before it cuts into the wing. I'm not going to worry about it. Is that really the case to begin with? And 
does this have to be documented in a log entry? And is that going to be part of a logbook inspection for a prospective buyer on a pre-purchase? Well, being informed now, listening to the show and knowing that we've gone so far in depth with this now, I absolutely, if I was doing it for a client or for myself and I was looking at, at one of these aircraft affected, I definitely would be looking for this. And I would definitely be looking for another entry. Again, back to, you know, this isn't a owner thing. This is not for the owners. This is not for the owners to take the nut off to tap the bolt back out lightly, to get under to take a look at it. Again, this is for the qualified certificated mechanics. This is a, a maintenance procedure. A tool's being used. They're conducting an inspection. They need to then, when they get done with the inspection, because they conducted an inspection, fill out the appropriate records, follow 43.9 and 43.11, make an appropriate entry in the records, and so that way it's well documented. I am personally going to be looking for that, and I, and I really hope I really hope that happens. I'm not sure. Again, like I told you, I haven't gotten in with the borescopia. I'm going to actually going to try this myself. I'm going to try to, you know, like I told you before, there's a lot of people that have used a brass drift, put a little bit of lubricant on there, and they tapped them out. And I've told everybody, we've told everybody not to do that. The instructions tell you not to do it. In several places, don't tap the bolts out. Don't tap the bolts out. You know, so a lot of these different owners that, that did the right thing, that the shops built the jigs and put the fuselages up and then put the little pressure on the wing and push the bolts out, they're going to have to go back through the same thing each side. We're going to have to do each side. You're going to have to lift it, take the pressure off, push the bolt out. And then once you get it out, do the inspection then of the spar cap at the top. Get in there, clean it off, make sure it hasn't been cut. And if it has, that's where we got to, now we've got to go to the next instruction. Well, you know, what do we do when we do find that it's how many thousands, you know, 3,000, 5,000, 8,000, you know, when it's cut down, the ones that you're going to, that I'm going to picture, I'm going to show you without a doubt, you can see it. It looks like a Canyon. It just cut directly into the wall. So, I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't need anything other than your eyeballs to see that it's been cut. Now, now that needs to be fixed. So. Rudder travel pitch field. Fine. Nav exterior lights. Servo control. Fine. Engine start panel. Crank it aboard. Fire handles. Oh. Seat belt no smoke. There's always something going on in aviation. I don't know. You know, it looks like Piper is probably going to have more service bulletins uh, this year than, it, than the rest of the manufacturers put together. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I mean, what's that going to do to Piper? Piper was never the great money maker to start with. You know, nobody in the aviation makes a lot of money on general aviation. So what's it going to do to them now? I mean, this is a substantial financial burden for the operators. And if it's a design problem, they're certainly going to look to the manufacturer to pay for the initial inspection, but they're certainly going to get them on the second one for shipping out a bad, bad part that put in there and caused damage. Yeah. That's clearly going to be the responsibility of of the manufacturer yeah. and, the, I mean, and the people that sold the, the, the hardware. Well, hopefully the FAA, um, it appears that, you know, they know the batch number. They know the quantity. They know the total. They know the total number of mismanufactured. So they know the overall batch number. So as long as the individual companies that were building the little kits, the little how-to kits that you could go online and other kits, as long as they were keeping tracking, you know, they're going to be able to, I'm hoping the FAA is going to pull this all together and try to run all these down so they can just notify owners. Look, at it appears that you bought out of this batch, this kit from this manufacturer that put this together. And so when you bought this kit, you may have the wrong washers. Hopefully they're getting down and doing that kind of research. This is just kind of a blanket announcement right now. You know, that's the birth certificate for, for POTS that we've gotten out of the, the unapproved parts program, where some manufacturers made aircraft parts that they weren't supposed to. 
So we've got tracking the, the hang of slang is we got birth certificates on our hardware. However, I don't know of any very many mechanics that record the batch numbers. They record the part numbers, but the batch numbers, off the top of my head, I can't remember anybody that's done that. Well, the, there's this little shop that I used to do a lot of work with when I was um, uh, aviation, when I was doing safety education and training as a fast team program manager. And this little shop was great. I would go in there all the time. She would buy 10,000 of something. For instance, washers. And this is the washers is a great example. She got an initial one card that came as the batch for the card. So what she did was she created her own little three inch by four inch white pad that she had produced. And what happened is every time somebody bought, because they come in, they I only need... 10 of these AN 960-14 washers. She would take it out and hand write off of the card that was in the front. She would hand write the batch and drop it in the baggie with the loose ones that she got. So the mechanic that came in, could they would have the card. And a lot of those guys would just staple them in the logbooks. So uh, that's how she kind of kept track of it. And it was a really good way. Now, not all shops are like that. <laughs> this is just one specific shop that I would go to quite often that sold parts. And uh, she did a really good job of tracking things. GA is not noted for tracking a lot of that no, stuff. No, no. So it, well, it's going to be interesting. It sure is. And, uh, and again, it's always good to have you on the show, Jace, because uh, you're staying up with this information. And, uh, again, this just recently came out. So this is the, the, uh, <laughs> the precursor to other parts of a storm that could be rolling through the Piper fleet again. Of course, we always appreciate the feedback that we get from you, our listeners, because we did have a number of email comments regarding this issue, which we greatly appreciate. And that's one of the reasons we keep updating you about this particular issue. So keep the, uh, the emails coming. You can always get a hold of John and I. You can get a hold of Jason through us as well at flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com. And uh, of course, John and I spend our days and nights uh, trying to respond to all those emails. And we pass on, I passed on a couple to Jason as well. And that's one of the reasons we have him on the show is so that we can address some of these more technical issues from a different perspective. So definitely give us your feedback on the show. Uh, if you got questions, concerns, issues you want to talk about, absolutely. We'd love to hear from you. And I know that uh, without our sponsors, PAMA and Avemco, this show wouldn't be possible. So we greatly appreciate the fact that uh, they are our sponsors and you can always get a hold of Avemco at avemco.com or John, what's the number? 888-241-7891. Give them a call, mention the show, get a 5% discount and they're good people to deal with. They insure Greg, so... <laughs> That, that's yeah. saying something. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. And yeah. uh, with partners like you, I don't need enemies. But the nice thing is, we are in person. Yeah, so now I can get back to throwing stuff at you because I couldn't throw it 1,400 miles. Now I can throw it six feet. <laughs> and he does too. <laughs> and uh, I would like to remind uh, our audience that we are. Because we're now back free to travel, uh, we're going to be hitting some schools where we have Emory Riddle on our agenda in the very near future. And 
you know, I personally love going to schools, and I know Greg does as well. So we're going to hit schools. And we had such positive feedback from our show that we uh, reached out to one of our listeners. And all the cards and letters aren't even in yet. There was sort of inside pool that, that we had people that were telling us how much they, they enjoyed that. So we're going we're gonna to end up doing some more of that where we're going to look, you know, we read all the information that comes in from the audience. And if we find somebody that has something that's really interesting, on point, or, or even one that's different to point of view from what we have, we are going to try to reach out to them, call them up and get them on the show. And, uh, you know, we don't mind having somebody that has a, a difference of opinion of our own than our own. And hell, sometimes the two of us don't agree. That's <laughs> so, so it, uh, that's on a regular basis, John. <laughs> it is. So we, we will reach out and, uh, and see how that goes. Cause it, the small group of people who had heard that pre publication really thought it was great. So we're going to try it a little bit more. Because this show is about our audience. It's not about us. I mean, we've been there, done that. What we're trying to do is educate everybody into the hows and whys of investigations take place and the positive things that can come out of them when people listen. Yep. So, And Jason and I went through that today with some of the work we were doing with an aircraft owner. He was very appreciative of the fact that the level of detail that Jason and I had exhibited in looking at his aircraft for a particular issue, explaining it to him so that he had a better understanding. And in fact, we actually educated him on his own airplane today about some things that he never learned in training and he sure didn't know about in operating this airplane for almost 100 hours. So that's the kind of thing that we try to at least um, present through the show but we also try to do it in person in our regular jobs as aircraft acts investigators and safety advocates. So we appreciate you, the audience. Definitely give us your feedback. We, we absolutely are all over our, uh, our sponsors because they believe in us and the message that we're trying to convey. So we absolutely thank them as well. But the best thing is, John, I'm so happy that we are back together so that we can do these shows in person and that's what's going to make the youtube channel version of this show better now because we are going to be in person and you're going to have to bring your shield and your armor and everything else <laughs> because i'm going to be firing all sorts of stuff at you you know i'll be getting one of those magnum power slingshots to, <laughs> to shoot stuff across the room that's right. Well, it's uh, it's great to uh, to be with uh, both Jason and John for this particular podcast. I'm looking forward to our future podcast together. So with that, my friend, as always, I will leave you with the last words. All right. To all our listeners, we're not out of the woods yet with this virus. So please stay safe. And then Greg and I have been, uh, we've been shot already. We still wear our masks. We're still careful about uh, gatherings, keeping the group small. So please keep it up. It may be just another month or two if we all pay attention. It may be just a month or two before we can all relax. But uh, we got to get this behind us. And again, if you're going flying, do 
a lot of pre-flight and planning before you get even out to the airplane. What you're going to do, a few weeks ago, we talked about somebody that took off with the tow bus attached to his airplane. That was a good pre-flight. We had people that had engine failures when they were still over the airfield, and they were looking for a place to put it down. I mean, you should know that before you get in the airplane. You should think about if things go wrong, what are you going to do? So a good pre-flight, good pre-planning, and fly safely. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.